Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Recently, Daryl West of uh, Brookings Institution uh, wrote a piece decrying the institutional relic, quote-unquote, that is the Electoral College. Why? Well, he, I, he says, and I quote, most of the country's economic activity is on the East Coast and the West Coast and a few metropolitan areas in between. The prosperous parts of the country, uh, excuse me, the prosperous parts of America, including about 15 states having 30 senators, while the less prosperous areas encapsulate 35 states having 70 senators. Those numbers demonstrate <laughs> the fundamental mismatch between economic vitality and political power. Oh, the horror. <laughs> the areas of our country that dominate our economy and our popular culture are prevented from similarly dominating our politics. Could you imagine? Uh, it's almost as though our founders designed a system in which every area of the country, every state, no matter how undeserving, gets some non-trivial amount of representation. It's almost as though our founders had looked back at history and concluded that when large swaths of a country or empire feels disenfranchised, left behind, and lorded over, deep trouble may be ahead. I wonder where they got that idea from. Uh, honestly, uh, what if Daryl West, only if Daryl West had been in Philadelphia with our founders, we'd have such a, such a better system. Jokes aside, our electoral college is today at risk like never before. An unconstitutional interstate compact meant to skirt the intent of the electoral college is gaining steam. So far, 15 states in the District of Columbia have signed an agreement to pledge their electoral college delegates to the highest vote recipient the nation over rather than the candidate preferred by their own state's electorate. The co-signatories are currently uh, currently have seventy four are currently seventy four electoral college delegates short of the two hundred and seventy needed to determine a presidential election. Uh, in a somewhat less serious threat, David Boyes, fresh off his stint representing medical tech company Theranos, has decided to sue California, Massachusetts, Texas, and South Carolina, uh, claiming that the winner-take-all apportionment uh, schemes by which they choose electoral college delegates disenfranchises millions of those states' voters. Today we are going to discuss why these threats should be taken seriously, why our electoral college retains such enduring importance, and how we can defend it in principle and in fact. Uh, to join us, we have Alan Gelzo. Alan Gelzo is now director of the, initi uh, of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship in the James Madison program at Princeton University. For many years, he was professor of the Civil, Civil War era and director of Civil War era studies at Gettysburg College, a very fine location to do that research. Though his primary research focuses on the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, he's also written books on 18th and 19th century New England theology. 
and also the Reconstruction period most recently. Perhaps it is this deep interest with conflict between the states and a distinct character and history of regions that accounts for Dr. Gelzo's long-standing interest in the Electoral College, which he's also written about so much. Trent England also joins us. Trent, Trent England has been um, for quite some time on the front lines of the fight to save the Electoral College. He is the founder and director of Save Our States, a nonprofit committed to defending the Electoral College. He is also executive vice president of the Oklahoma Council for Public Affairs before running for a seat on, the Washington, on Washington State's House of Representatives in 2006. Trent was a legal policy analyst with the Heritage Foundation. He publishes widely in the popular press, contributed to two books, and appears frequently on cable news. He also has a podcast, well worth listening to, called the Trent England Podcast. Hans von Spakowski also joins us. Mr. von Spakowski is a senior legal fellow here at Heritage Foundation's Mies Center for the Legal and Judicial Studies. He is Heritage Foundation's expert on all things to do with elections, as well as immigration, gun control, the Monuments Clause, and recently impeachment. And that's just the last month of publications. Uh, he is co-author with John Fund of the book, Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, as well as Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Uh, he also appears in Fox News regularly, writes just about everywhere, just about every single day. <laughs> Prior to joining Heritage Foundation in 2006, Von Spakovsky served two years uh, on the FEC and served in the DOJ as well. Uh, so with that, we'll begin with Dr. Gelzo, move on to uh, Mr. England, and then Mr. Von Spakovsky. Thank you, John. Let me begin by offering four arguments in favor of the Electoral College, feeling that perhaps it's about time somebody said something nice about it. First of all, having the Electoral College underscores that ours is a federal system. We only got the Constitution because the Constitutional Convention persuaded the states to enter into a federation arrangement. We had had an earlier federation arrangement, the Articles of Confederation, which proved to be a spectacular failure, but not so much a failure that the states were willing to give everything up. So we adopted a new federal structure. But it's still a federation. Without the federation approach, the United States would quickly have become balkanized and feeble. We also structure everything else in the Constitution around the Federation idea. We divide powers between states and federal governments. We have a Senate in which the states are represented. The states ratified the Constitution by state conventions, and the states, likewise, have to approve amendments to the Constitution. The Constitution can only be terminated by an action of the states in a national convention. Saying all these things underscores that federalism is in the bones of our nation. And I would be concerned that we can't start removing bones without the whole body collapsing. Secondly, the Electoral College embodies a fundamental instinct of the founders, which is to say, slow down. Ours is a slow-moving government, prone to gridlock, 
And though we often complain about gridlock, that gridlock is not actually an accident. The founders who assembled in the Constitutional Convention in 1787 had seen how the revolution had produced a flurry of state governments eager to distance themselves by the past by making everything into one man, one vote, all the time. That produced spontaneity. It also produced stupidity, as was often seen in the case, for instance, of the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776. The Constitution that was adopted in, in Philadelphia in 1787 breaks down decision-making in a variety of ways, the separation of powers, checks and balances, in order to prevent power from endangering liberty. Likewise with the Electoral College. The Electoral College is yet one more of an example of the slow-down principle. The Electoral College also provides us with an unlooked-for and unexpected benefit. I say unlooked-for and unexpected because there's no evidence that the founders anticipated this benefit, and yet the benefit is there. The benefit runs this way. It forces presidential candidates to appeal to a wider range of voters than they might otherwise. Presidents, in other words, cannot win their office just by appealing to California and New York. Now, this is not the best argument in defense of the Electoral College, because it means that instead of presidential candidates appealing to just two states, they now appeal to 10 or 12, and they still leave the others just as neglected. But 10 or 12 is still better than two, so that is a benefit. Fourthly, there's another unexpected benefit which should make us hesitate to take out the knife to the Electoral College, and that is that it helps contain voter fraud. There's no point in political parties or political candidates playing fraud games and ballot box stuffing in Montana, Idaho, and Kansas because they won't get much bang for their buck in terms of the electoral votes. But if everything in a presidential election is based on a national total, then voter fraud can be conducted everywhere and it can take place in regions that will be difficult to police and enforce, which will generate endless skeins of litigation contesting the outcomes, and yet all of that voting would somehow have to count towards the creation of a new president. How that might happen and how long that might take and what paralysis that might instill is something which should give us sober second thoughts. Beyond these four immediate arguments in favor of the Electoral College, I'd also like to raise the issue of legitimacy. The fundamental problem in all democracies is the problem of legitimacy. If sovereignty resides in the people, and all the people have a say, then what keeps them from breaking the government up whenever the decisions of the government go against them? Only processes which make the outcome of elections incontestable. 
This the Electoral College does. It takes the presidential election, and by slowing the process down and putting it through an additional stage, it forces us to look at the result and to see that, in fact, this is the result we can be happy with. That is legitimacy, and legitimacy is vital to the life of a democracy. So that brings us to the question then, should we repeal, amend, destroy the Electoral College? Well, the question that ought to come first is, why bother? The process would be extremely cumbersome. For instance, when the rise of political parties jammed the gears of the Electoral College originally, Congress chose to revise, not to replace the Electoral College, with the Twelfth Amendment. There have been suggestions from time to time that because repealing the Electoral College or amending the Constitution to eliminate it would be so cumbersome, perhaps some other way of retaining the Electoral College but neutering it should be considered. Among these, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. But as Trent England will explain, there are numerous problems with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, not the least of which is that it's a compact. There's no guarantee that the participants are going to abide by the final result. Also, again, in response to the question, should we repeal the Electoral College? The Electoral College itself helps to discourage third-party candidates, and third-party candidates would act to further dilute legitimacy. The Electoral College tends to confer legitimacy. Seventeen out of 29 United States elections have been decided by 200 or more Electoral College votes. That puts a lot of shoulder to the wheel of political legitimacy. Of course, it has been objected that the Electoral College is somehow intended to be a break on the popular will rather than an expression of it. It was supposed to be a protection for small states versus big states, at least according to the mythology. But in fact, it was never intended to function that way. Only rarely have electors bucked the popular vote in their states. One District of Columbia elector cast a blank ballot in 2000. One Minnesota Kerry elector cast a vote for Edwards in 2004. And there are a few other examples of so-called faithless electors, but not many. Actually, the Electoral College was intended more to be a break on over-mighty presidents. Presidents who might claim that because they had some kind of direct mandate from the people, they could speak for the people over and against Congress. The biggest objections which lie in the path of keeping the Electoral College these days are articulated by Akhil Reed Amar of Yale, and they focus or almost rotate around two poles. One, that the Electoral College violates the rule of one man, one vote, and that the Electoral College is somehow tainted by slavery. Amar argues that one man, one vote rules everywhere else in American politics. 
In the state governments, when we elect executives, in this case the state governors, we have one man, one vote. Why can't we have that nationally for the president? But we have to stop here and wonder, if this is the case, then why not apply the same rule of one man, one vote thoroughly across the boards? Why, for instance, can I not vote for Rhode Island's House of Representatives delegation? I ought to be able to do that. In fact, we ought to be voting for the House of Representatives nationally and do it on a general basis rather than state by state, district by district. Well, the reason we don't do that is federalism. If we want to get rid of the Electoral College, we would also have to get rid of every other aspect of federalism. We would have to get rid of the United States Senate. We would have to seriously reconstruct the House of Representatives because the states are the ones who draw the district boundaries. And above all, why settle on electing a president, even on the basis of one man, one vote? Why settle on electing a president every four years? If one man, one vote is to be the rule, then as soon as a president loses popular support, we ought to have another vote. So we could have presidential elections every six months, three months, eight months, every time there's an unpleasant tweet. If the Electoral College violates one man, one vote popular rule, my argument would be turn that back on the states. Professor Amar says, why should 35 million Californians get only the same say in the Senate as Wyoming, which has just half a million people? Well, let's take a look at California. California gave 61% of its popular vote to Hillary Rodham Clinton. And so she won all 55 of California's electoral votes. But that majority was won in 32 counties clustered around San Francisco and Los Angeles. The rest of the state, 22 counties, went Republican. But they got no say whatsoever in how California's electoral votes were cast, despite making up a solid block of the state north of San Francisco. Is that an example of one man, one vote? Well, solution? Let's break up California. Not get rid of the Electoral College. Let's break up California. Let's try that. That would be less painful. And allow Northern California to be represented the way it wants. That would, of course, mean adding, in all likelihood, two more Republican senators to the Senate and about 20 more Republican seats in the House, and that explains why that particular inequity is not going to be corrected. Or take Illinois. There are 102 counties in Illinois, but only 11 of them went Democratic in 2016. Nevertheless, Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote 3 million to 2 million, and entirely because of the Chicago area. For that reason, she got all of Illinois' 20 electoral votes. Is that fair to the rest of the state? So again, my solution, break up Illinois. And of course, send still more Republican senators and representatives to Congress, which is why that's not going to happen. Here's the bottom line. Professor Amar has said, that the Constitution should not rig elections. We should treat all presidential voters equally. Well, if you want to complain about the Electoral College on the national level, complain about what happens on the state level, too. But I don't hear that happening. 
The other major argument which is leveled against the Electoral College has to do with slavery and the accusation, this is the gotcha moment of the Electoral College, that the Electoral College was designed to favor the slave states. And this largely arises out of a comment made on July 19, 1787, in the course of the Constitutional Convention, by James Madison. Madison said this, If it be a fundamental principle of free government, that the legislative, executive, and judiciary powers should be separately exercised, it is equally so that, that they be independently exercised. There is the same and perhaps greater reason why the executive should be independent of the legislature than why the judiciary should. A coalition of the two former powers would be more immediately and certainly dangerous to public liberty. There was one difficulty, however, of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed on the whole to be liable to fewest objections. Well, this is what I, why I call it the gotcha moment. Now, I start in responding to this by observing that it was not Madison who first proposed the Electoral College, but James Wilson, who in fact originally had argued for direct popular election to the president. Well, what does Madison's July 19th statement mean? Alas, it's not very clear, but it's construed as meaning that the Electoral College will favor slavery. Well, first of all, this occurs in the context of a debate over whether the executive should be elected by popular vote or by Congress, and for what term, not in the context of slavery. Would the members of the convention have understood that the Electoral College was favoring slavery and therefore favoring the southern states? How could they? Every northern state had slaves in 1790, except Vermont and Massachusetts. Pennsylvania still had slaves in 1840. New York doesn't free its last slaves until 1827. Then the question comes, would not counting slaves as zero-fifths instead of three-fifths have penalized the southern states, and hence the Electoral College is introduced to save the southern states? Well, let's take New York and Virginia as examples, the largest slave states north and south, respectively. Subtract the slave population of New York entirely, no free-fifths clause at all, and you get 319,000 voters. Subtract the slave population of Virginia in the same way, and you get 455,000. But by the determination of the Constitutional Convention, about apportionment, Virginia still gets more representatives, even though you have taken slaves entirely off the board for the purpose of counting. Do the same thing for the next tier. Subtract the slave population of South Carolina, and you get 142,000 voters. Subtract in the same way for New Jersey, and you get 173,000. Not even enough of a difference to get even one extra representative according to the 40,000 voter rule. Other testimony about the Electoral College and the Constitutional Convention comes from John Dickinson in the Committee on Postponed Parts, the fourth committee of the convention. 
As Dickinson recalled, Madison came into the committee room in the State House where the committee was meeting and then took out a pen and paper and sketched out a mode of electing the president, which turned out to be James Wilson's original proposal for a college of electors of the president, chosen by those of the people in each state who shall have the qualifications requisite. This would dampen the objections made by George Mason to direct election by the common people, and yet preserving the idea that the president should entirely owe his elevation to the will of the people directly declared through their organs, the electors. So what did Madison mean in his comment? Because the northern states had more expansive laws for enfranchising white voters than the southern states, it's a good thing we're still counting slaves, or this would afford northern states a chance to unbalance elections. Madison's comment is not an argument in favor of slavery, but rather against using rules about white voter eligibility to unbalance the states. Taking this as a whole, there's very little evidence that the Electoral College either represented some free gift to slavery in the early republic, or at least was not intended by this on the part of the Constitutional Convention, also, we have to deal with the fact that the Electoral College, for all that it appears cumbersome and a violation of one man, one vote, actually turns out to have much more in the way of attraction and direction in the integrity of the voting process than we often give it credit. There is something to be said for be careful what you wish for. And it does help us to remember that among those places which do have the rule of one man, one vote, we find such interesting examples of politics as Iran. Again, be careful what you wish for. Thank you. Thank you all so much for, uh, for being here. My job is to, uh, to tell the story of this National Popular Vote Interstate Compact and, uh, and then Hans von Spakowski is going to round things out by talking about the problems with that, with that compact. Uh, and, uh, and, and as John mentioned, for, for me, this goes back uh, a dozen, I guess about a dozen years. In 2006, I was working at the Freedom Foundation, uh, then called the Evergreen Freedom Foundation in Washington State. And my boss came back from a legislative conference, and he had heard a presentation uh, from a couple of people about this national popular vote interstate compact, which nobody had really heard of at the time. And, and he came back. We were working on election integrity issues. And he came back and said, this, this is a serious threat to the Electoral College. And I think he was probably the first uh, conservative, the first constitutionalist to, to recognize this threat of, uh, of NPV. But the NPV story goes back a few years before that. Um, and I've, I've learned that I have to <clears throat> have to uh, talk about the 2000 election. Uh, talking with my uh, with my interns, they said, "Well, we, something like 2016 actually happened before." Uh, so, uh, so the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Uh, George W. Bush loses uh, the doesn't doesn't get the most popular votes by a margin of about 500,000, but he wins the the electoral college, and uh, and obviously. 
uh, as we experienced again in 2016, uh, you have a lot of partisan sour grapes. And it's just, it's human nature, right? When we lose a contest, to look back at the rules and ask the question, well, maybe it wasn't me, maybe it wasn't my presidential campaign, maybe the rules were unfair. And so there, there was a lot of talk after 2000 about uh, was there some way to get rid of the Electoral College? But by one count, there have been something like 700 proposed amendments in Congress to either abolish or, or significantly alter the Electoral College. Obviously, they all have failed, including some um, in the 1950s and in the 1970s that actually passed the House but ultimately failed in the, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and so, so the folks who were upset by Al Gore's loss we're looking around for something different. And a, a couple of law professor brothers, actually, Akhil Amar, uh, who was already mentioned, and his brother uh, Vikram David Amar, wrote an article suggesting that, that maybe the flexibility in the Constitution, the power that state legislatures have, could be used to neuter, or I often say to hijack, the Electoral College. Uh, because what the Constitution says is each state shall appoint, this is Article 2, Section 1, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, right? And so the, the electors belong to the state. The legislature determines how those electors are to be appointed. And, uh, and Vic and Akhil Amar said, what if, what if we could just convince state legislatures to ignore their own people, right, to ignore their own voters, uh, states have used a lot of different ways to choose presidential electors over the years. Early on, many legislatures just directly appointed presidential electors, and gradually they, they came up with various kinds of popular election. They actually had, in some states, electoral college presidential elector districts. Uh, some states have used congressional districts. Maine and Nebraska still do that today. But most states over time uh, adopted the winner-take-all rule because it maximizes their, their state's political power in the process. So states have used, have used this flexibility that they have in various ways, but it's always been about their people. And that clearly, from the founding debates, from the, from the debates at the Constitutional Convention, that was, that was the understanding, right? That the Electoral College would in some way uh, reflect the political will of each state. But the Amar brothers said, no, we, we, could, we think we could convince state legislatures to, uh, to appoint their state's presidential electors based on the national vote. And you have to give them credit, right? This is, this is very clever. It is not obviously unconstitutional. Um, I, I, I think it, it is very constitutionally problematic, and it may, in fact, be unconstitutional. But it's not obviously so, right? It uses this power in Article 2, Section 1 in, in a way that, that completely turns the Electoral College on its head. Well, you know... <clears throat> Liberal law professors have a lot of bad ideas. Uh, and, and this would have just been, you know, another one to add to the list, except that there was an Al Gore elector from California named John Coza, uh, who I, I've debated multiple times. He's a, he's a brilliant gentleman. He is credited with being the second person in the country to receive a computer science degree uh, back in, uh, uh, I think the 60s from, uh, from University of Michigan, a brilliant computer scientist at Stanford. And uh, he was a, a big supporter of Al Gore. And he was an Al Gore presidential elector, very frustrated after Gore lost. He was smart enough to, to understand, though, that, uh, you know, campaigning for abolition of the, of the Electoral College wasn't going to happen. Changing the Constitution was not going to happen. There's, there has not been anything like a national consensus to do that. 
And he came across the Amar brothers and another attorney, Bob Bennett, who had written some similar some similar things, and he took this idea and ran with it. And what's important to understand about John Cosa is that uh, before he became the, the chairman and chief funder of the National Popular Vote Campaign, he actually uh, invented the algorithm behind the scratch-off lottery. So, you know, here's a guy who wins on every scratch-off lottery ticket, right? And he spent the 19, he invented this in the late 70s, he spent the 1980s traveling around to states uh, convincing state legislatures that uh, that if they adopted a scratch off lottery, it would solve all of their education funding problems, right? Some of some of you will remember this, right? And uh, of course, you know whether it solved uh, state education funding problems, probably in doubt. It certainly solved John Cosa's funding problems, and uh, and he he found this national popular vote idea turned turned what the Amar brothers had come up with into an interstate compact. Uh, and uh, and immediately pledged $12 million uh, behind that. Uh, Jonathan Soros, the son of George Soros, put in another $2 million, and they were off and running. I mean, $14 million to launch a state-based uh, effort to lobby state legislatures is, is a lot of money. Um, and uh, very quickly, within the first few years, they launched this in 2006. They won Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington State, where I was, I was working at the time, we, we fought them off for one year, but they came back and uh, won there on a, on a purely partisan basis. Massachusetts, the District of Columbia, um, then 2010 rolled around and an interesting thing happened, um, which is that they lost some electoral votes from the National Popular Vote Compact. Uh, because if you if you think about it, every ten years we reapportion electoral votes, and the states that uh, that I just mentioned, many of those many of those states lost uh, relative population, and some of those states lost congressional districts and therefore electoral votes. Uh, but uh, th- this this interstate compact though was was smartly designed. It, it didn't actually change the law in any of those states, because what it says is. Uh, that the compact only takes effect if it's joined by enough states that they actually could control the outcome of presidential elections, which means you need states worth 270 or more electoral votes. So the compact, even though all of these states have adopted the compact, right, it has no effect on the 2008, 2012, 2016 election uh, because they haven't got to 270. Um, after, after 2010, they picked up Vermont, they picked up California, um, and th- then things started to slow down. We launched an effort called Save Our States in 2009 and began following them around the country and educating state lawmakers on, on uh, really the, the points that Alan has made so, so brilliantly and, uh, and also some of the things that, uh, that Hans is going to talk about, specific problems with the compact. And, uh, and we, we, we just about fought them to a standstill. <clears throat> they won Rhode Island and New York um, over the next couple of uh, several years, uh, but then t- 2016 happened, and obviously this became uh, a, a very different kind of an issue. I've told people it was a lot of fun, actually, to work on this before 2016 because, uh, because it, was, it was relatively bipartisan. Um, you know, there were the, the sour grapes from 2000 had kind of waned, and uh, there were a lot of Democrats, um, in addition to Republicans, who recognized that uh, this national popular vote compact is dangerous, that the Electoral College benefits us, uh, and, uh, and, and we, were, we were doing quite well until, until 2016. Uh, 
And then all of a sudden, there, there was a, a massive grassroots that sort of sprang up underneath this national popular vote lobbying campaign. The 2018 election happened, and, uh, and, and Democrats won more power in some state legislatures. And very quickly, uh, Connecticut, Colorado, Delaware, New Mexico, and Oregon, uh, most of those states, states that where we had fought this off for, for at least a decade, um, all, all enacted national popular vote legislation. Uh, the most exciting thing going on in this fight right now <clears throat> is in Colorado. Uh, so Colorado, uh, the, the, the Democrats won a trifecta there in 2018. The, the governor, both chambers of their legislature, uh, they jammed this through purely, purely partisan basis um, in Colorado. And Colorado is one of these states that has a referendum process where citizens can go and gather signatures to force a measure to go to the ballot. And a couple of local government officials, Rose Puglisi, who's a Mesa County Commissioner from Western Colorado, and Don Wilson, who's the mayor of Monument, Colorado, which is just south of Denver uh, on, the, on the other side of the Rocky Mountains, uh, came together and, uh, and launched a citizen-driven campaign to gather signatures and force this to the ballot. They collected a record number of signatures. Uh, the, the, the citizens of Colorado were not too pleased with, uh, with partisans trying to manipulate their, uh, their part in the presidential election process. And so Colorado will actually have the first popular vote on the national popular vote interstate compact next November. So a year from roughly right now, uh, people there will, will vote. And, and uh, what we have seen so far is that you know, the, the Electoral College, there's a lot of polling out there on the Electoral College. National popular vote will go out and poll people on this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like going out and polling people on string theory or something. That's a little bit of an overstatement, right? But, you, you know, you go out and poll people on, on uh, you know, calculus, right? People may have opinions, uh, but, but people, those opinions are very shallow, right? Most people have never studied the Electoral College. They, they haven't uh, been able to, to hear Dr. Gelzo talk about the, the real history behind this and how it works and why it's so important. And, uh, and, and so, you know, pollsters can, can shape their questions in ways uh, that make the Electoral College look very unpopular. But what we've experienced in Colorado, and I've seen this on a smaller scale in other states, is that when you really talk with people about what the Electoral College does in our political system, it's, it's relatively easy to get people to, to understand how important it is. And this is what we're seeing in Colorado. Citizens standing up against their political leaders who have uh, tried to foist this on them and, uh, and we're very optimistic there that, that Colorado is going to reject this. But where do things stand right now with national popular vote? Fifteen states plus the District of Columbia have joined the national popular vote interstate compact. I told you that it needs 270 electoral votes or more to actually be triggered and take effect. Um, and by the way, until it's triggered, you can't sue to challenge it. I get that, that question all the time. People say, well, why can't, why can't you just sue and, and knock this thing down in court? Um, you can't sue because it's not technically in effect unless they achieve 270 electoral votes or more. Right now, they have 196 electoral votes in the compact. Uh, national popular vote is a serious threat. And uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, watch uh, the statements by politicians like Elizabeth Warren, right? She says she, she has endorsed national popular vote as the easiest way to get rid of the Electoral College. And she says, if only we could do this, 
we could create quote unquote national voting, right? Force the centralization of our voting, take away the election integrity laws that some states have, right? You, you had to show a photo ID to get in here. Um, but obviously there are a lot of politicians who don't think you should have to show a photo ID to vote. And getting rid of the electoral college is one of the ways Right, that these politicians see to create federal control over elections where then you could rip away some of these uh, election integrity protections. Um, you, you know, look at the support from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who, who obviously recognizes that this would shift political power dramatically, as, as John mentioned at the beginning, to the big cities on the coast. Right. I mean, to, to, you know, frankly, I don't think a politician like Representative Ocasio-Cortez would ever have a chance, uh, once she's old enough, of becoming president of the United States with an electoral college type system. Right. But if you if we if we abolished elect the electoral college, whether through NPV or some other way, it would open the doors to a much more radical kind of politics. Uh, this this is a a serious threat. It's a serious effort. Sometimes people tell me, well. You know, those are all, all the states that you listed off. Are they're either blue states or they're purple states, controlled completely by Democrats. It's important to to know that that the national popular vote campaign. I mentioned they, you know, they have a huge war chest to lobby for this. Um, they have got their plan through Republican-controlled legislative chambers, like the Arizona uh, House of Representatives, like the Oklahoma uh, State Senate. They had a majority of Michigan State Senate Republicans co-sponsor the bill last year when they tried to push it through in a lame duck session. Every time they've done that, we've been able to mobilize grassroots. And, uh, and the grassroots have been able to educate legislators and stop national popular vote. But it's important to understand this is not just going on in blue states. Um, this is going on across the country. National popular vote talks about being bipartisan. I think they spell that B-U-Y um, because I, I don't think I've ever met personally at least, ever met a prominent supporter of national popular vote who's, who's either not on their payroll, has been on their payroll, or has taken one of their fancy junkets to islands, which is their favorite lobbying technique uh, for state legislators. But uh, this is a serious threat. Wherever you live, red state, purple state, um, there are people there lobbying to hijack the Electoral College through the NPV compact. Thank you. Well, I probably should just stay seated. I'm not sure what else I can say uh, after Trent and Allen have covered this. But uh, I want to start at a 30,000-foot level and then go down to the grassroots and tell you why, why this is a, a problem. Um, you know, everybody always talks about this national presidential election. Well, it's pretty clear that the framers of the Constitution, the founders, didn't want a national presidential election. They wanted a series of regional elections because that's what you have when you have a federal system where you have a federal government balanced by state governments. And by having presidential candidates uh, engaging in a series of regional contests where they have to win in all of the states that make up the union, uh, they thought that was the best way to get a president who appealed to as broad a spectrum of the American electorate as possible. And that would avoid a problem that, that uh, they talked about then and is even more of a problem today, which is uh, in a national popular vote system, uh, candidates could just ignore the rural, smaller parts of the country, the area that elites in the Northeast like to call flyover country today, and they could just go to the large urban centers 
as has been mentioned, the big cities on the east and west coast, and just campaign there and ignore the rest of the country. And this has gotten worse today. According to the U.S. Census, 80% of Americans live in urban areas. 40% live in the 10 largest media markets. Now, this was actually uh, recognized recently by the uh, governor of Nevada. He's a Democrat. And as uh, Trent pointed out, so far, you know, only blue states have, uh, have adopted this. But the Democratic governor of Nevada recently vetoed popular compact bill that had been passed by his Democratic legislature. Why? Because of this very reason. He said that it would diminish the influence of rural and smaller states. Um, the whole point of the Electoral College is to balance uh, the state's demands for greater representation uh, and sovereignty, but, but to uh, balance against the risk of what James Madison uh, liked to call the tyranny of the majority. And that is an important factor that is structured throughout our entire constitutional system. Now, those pushing for this, the National Popular Vote Plan, claim that, um, well, this will prevent uh, battleground states from getting all the attention. Well, the problem with that analysis is, and something they ignore, is that the states that today are considered uh, solidly blue or red weren't so long ago. I mean, just to give you an example, you know, California was actually competitive for decades. Ronald Reagan, Republican, was elected the uh, governor of that state. Florida was considered a red state until the mid-1990s. Uh, Virginia only recently became a swing state, illustrating that swing states change. What doesn't change is urban centers. They just get bigger and bigger and bigger, whereas the battleground states change. Now, take what happened in the 2000 election, where we had a recount in Florida, where we had chaos in the recounts, chaos in the litigation, arguments, fights over what was going on, and imagine that same problem in every single one of the over 3,000 counties of the United States. Why would that happen? Well, obviously that would happen with a popular vote plan. Because, you know, in the 2000 election, um, there was a recount in Florida because that would make the difference in who won the election. But in a national popular vote system where every single vote in every single county and every single township in places like Michigan could make the difference, uh, losing candidates would demand recounts everywhere. And I hate to tell you this, people who are familiar with election law know this, the recount rules vary in every single state. And not only would there be fights over the recounts, like I said, magnify what happened in Florida by not just 50 states, but over 3,000 counties, um, there would be fights over the provisional ballots that are issued in every state now too, and where there are arguments over whether a particular individual who cast a provisional ballot because they weren't on the voter registration list, uh, whether or not they're an eligible and valid voter and whether their vote should be counted uh, or not. Um, the other advantage, and this is something Al talked about, is that, look, the, the, national po the, the Electoral College, particularly the fact that 48 states have a winner-take-all system, uh, 
that helps give the winner of our presidential election, even when the popular vote total is very close, uh, they, it gives them a mandate that helps them govern. And that is extremely uh, important. Uh, mandates are vital, I believe, in providing presidents with the authority to make decisions that are respected by the public. Um, as Alice said, it would also, it would encourage uh, voter fraud. Uh, after all, every bogus vote cast anywhere in the country could make the difference in changing the outcome of a national race and not just the results in one state. And that would be particularly dangerous in one-party towns. If you look at the history of voter fraud in this country, if you look at the voter fraud database, yes, it does exist. We actually have a database at the Heritage Foundation that's got we just added more cases to it, uh, over 1,200 proven cases. Um, the easiest place to commit voter fraud are in one-party counties and one-party states where the other party is not there to help watch what is going on and to try to prevent that uh, from happening. And under the NPV, there'd be an increased incentive to engage in, fr in, place in fraud in places that are the most corrupt and where every fraudulent vote could make potentially make the outcome uh, in the result of a presidential election. It also, I mean, you think we get into fights now over public policy and what's going on? Uh, a national popular vote system, I think, could really radicalize American politics. And why is that? Well, because the winner under the MPV would be whichever candidate gets the most votes, even if it's only a relatively small plurality. I mean, the more candidates you have in the race and the more the votes are split, I mean, you could have people winning the presidential election with 35% of the vote, maybe less, depending on how many candidates uh, get into it. And just think, think about what's been happening in this country over the last three years. Can you imagine the questions and the lack of um, confidence people would have of the decisions in a president elected by a third of the American voters? Every decision that president makes uh, would, be, would be questioned. Um, the MPV folks say that they can get a state compact approved and that that state compact will not have to be okayed by Congress. If you look at the Constitution, there's a provision in there that says that state compacts have to be approved by Congress. However, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case, which I won't go into the you with all the legal details, but in essence, what the Supreme Court said, they set out this uh, three-part test. And the Supreme Court said uh, Congress only has to approve state compacts that are going to affect the federal government and the federal structure of our government. They don't have to approve compacts uh, in which states are just dealing with issues between them. Probably the best example of that is, uh, you know, when states get into fights over rivers that flow through two different states on who gets to use the water in them, that's potentially just a compact if they come to an agreement that affects those two states. Uh, the MPV folks argue that this state compact only affects the states, doesn't affect the structure of the federal government. I think that's completely wrong, so I think it is would be unconstitutional without the approval of Congress. But if enough states adopt this, to represent 270 electoral votes, there would be litigation over this issue and whether or not Congress has to uh, approve it. 
the bottom line, I think, is this. And I think a lot of Americans just don't understand this. Um, what we've got in this country is really unprecedented. For over 200 years, the keys to power, the keys to the White House, have been peacefully handed over every four years or every eight years uh, in the most powerful country in the world with never even the hint, well, maybe until recently, of any attempt to refuse to abide by the results of the presidential election. The advocates for the NPV have not made the case that our system is somehow going to work better under the NPV. And what we've had for over 200 years with the Electoral College system is unbelievable stability something that so many other countries in the world have never had and that, I, frankly, I think envy us for happening, uh, for, for having that. Um, there is no reason to change the framers' view of federalism and a representative republic that balances popular sovereignty with structural protections for state governments and minorities, and that's what the electoral college system does. There is no reason to change it now. Thanks. Let's turn it over to questions. Go right ahead. Um, I have a question about this. Uh, uh, the, uh, the 10th Circuit decision about the faithless elector, and maybe one of you can explain it better than I can, but what is the right answer, and does it affect the, uh, the, the, this compact? That's, uh, is it sort of a precursor to what uh, you know, it has implications for it, whether it's constitutional or not? But, I mean – just on just on whether it affects the compact. So you know, states have have basically two kinds of laws about presidential electors. One one kind of law that every state has to have says how those electors are chosen. The other kind of law that that many states have but some don't says you know it try, tries to bind those electors, right? And that's what what's at odds in the Tenth Circuit case and the Washington State Supreme Court case. You know and. Uh, uh, that, that which, kind of which, which came to opposite conclusion. Yeah, yeah, that makes it, you know. Yeah, we should explain this. The, the Tenth Circuit said that uh, they, they, they held invalid. Was it Colorado? Colorado, yeah, yeah. They held invalid Colorado's law that went after an elector who did not vote the way that elector had pledged to vote in the presidential election, whereas in Washington State, the state Supreme Court recently held, held up a state law that not only fined a faithless elector, but removed him and replaced him with another elector. So we have totally two totally different views of, of that issue. Yeah. And, and Colorado seeking certiorari, so the Supreme right. that's before the, the court whether to take that case. NPV only changes laws about how electors are selected. So NPV really isn't affected by the challenge to to these laws that try to bind electors. Because, you know, under NPV, if, if it ever took effect, right, so um, if, uh, if Republicans won Colorado but Democrats won the national popular vote and, uh, and this was in effect in Colorado, then, then NPV would say, well, Colorado's Democrat-nominated electoral, you know, presidential elector slate is elected. And then if that, if that law was in place, they would be bound to vote the way that, that, that they had pledged to their party uh, nominee, but that's, I mean, the, the reality of this whole dispute is kind of a tempest in a teapot because presidential electors are real people. They're nominated typically 
at a state political party convention. And and so the while they may occasionally try to send a message by being a faithless elector, uh, the, the odds that they would ever actually try to, to you know, to actually affect an election um, are very low and it's never really happened. I, mean, I don't think it's ever happened. It certainly hasn't in the modern era. Uh, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, Michael Maybach with the Center for the Electoral College. One of the things that I don't think was mentioned was the um, importance of our two-party system. And if we moved away from electoral college, wouldn't we move to a multi-party system like Europeans typically have? You know, I don't, I don't particularly have anything against multi-party systems, but if you think we have gridlock now with two parties arguing and not being able to agree, if we had five parties in, in Congress, things probably would, things would be even more, more difficult. And I actually think that the two-party system is one of the things that has helped maintain the stability of, of, our, of our government. I think the Knesset is a good example of what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go right ahead. I'm curious to know um, when NPV goes into these state legislatures, what I, I'm assuming they probably give them some model legislation for how they would change the way that their electors are selected. Um, and I'm kind of curious to know what they advocate. And also, um, I would assume that when legislatures pass laws saying how the electors are going to be chosen, that those are viewed as acting in perpetuity. What's happened in the states where they've said, nope, we just, we're, we're going back to the old way. Um, has, have there changes, have, has this, um, recanting of what they adopted been accepted. Um, and it seems like also we could get into a situation where states would kind of be going back and forth about whether they accepted this compact idea. So, so national popular vote is an interstate compact, which means a, a couple of things. One is it's a piece of state legislation. It's, it's, it's a bill and states that join the compact do that by enacting that bill. So it, it's the same in every state, um, with the exception, sometimes there's state-specific things that have to be put at the beginning or the end, but the, the core of it is, is identical in every state. And, uh, and it just, it just said, it's very simple, which they argue is sort of a, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a positive thing, um, but the reality is it just says nothing about any kind of disputes or all of the, the issues that have been raised here. Uh, which even the Amar brothers have actually pointed out that that really the way the way NPV has turned their idea into legislation is problematic, but uh, uh, but it I mean it just calls on the the state whoever's in charge of elections in that state typically the Secretary of State instead of looking at the state presidential election results and uh, in determining who the state's presidential electors base, are based on that, they would try to collect the presidential election results from every other state. And each secretary of state in the compact would certify for, the, for their own state what they believe is the national popular vote total. And then based on that certification, elect, yeah, it, I mean, it, it is, it, it, I mean, Hans did a great job of explaining the problems with it, but it's one of these things where the more you think about it, I mean, it just, all of these crazy things could happen. 
Um, and I'll tell you another thing that I think would just cause chaos. Imagine we have a presidential election and um, uh, let's say that uh, all these democratically controlled states have passed the compact and they're now required under the compact to award um, uh, their, their electoral college votes to whoever's won the national popular vote and a Republican wins. What do you and the state legislatures who voted for this are suddenly faced after the November election with explaining to, to their constituents why they passed a law that says that uh, instead of awarding the electoral college votes to the Democratic presidential candidate who won a majority in the state, they're awarding it to the Republican candidate. I, I think there are state legislators uh, in those situations would immediately, if they're not in session want to call a special session to immediately get out of and cancel the state compact. And so then you have the situation where you have a presidential election and one side is saying, well, you're, you're in this compact. You have to award your, your, your votes to the Republican. And yet they're just passed legislation saying, oh, no, no, we're awarding it to the Democrat. Can you imagine how many lawyers in Washington would make enough money to buy uh, Ferraris and Bugattis, whatever, at that litigation. I mean, it would be unbelievable. What about the states who said they voted it in and then they changed their mind? So, no, no. Well, so Colorado, uh, no states have, have passed it and then repealed it, although there have been multiple repeal efforts. Colorado, technically, um, the referendum process really stays implementation of the law until the vote next November. So... It's easier to talk about it as repeal, but you know, technically it's just a delay. Well, um, that's all the time we have, unfortunately. But if you'd like to stay behind, I'm sure our panelists would be happy to speak offline. Thanks so much for coming. Hey, great job. That was yeah, awesome. Yeah, great introduction. Oh, thanks. That was really good. <laughs>